tonight on Arena. Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel on their new film, All of Us Strangers, and in telereviews, Masters of the Air, Expats, and Griselda. One double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Isolation and grief lie at the heart of all of us strangers. The new film from Andrew Haig, starring our very own Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel. Adam, played by Andrew Scott, lives alone in a chic central London apartment, though the building itself is eerily underoccupied. The only other person he encounters is Paul Meskel's Harry, a younger man who hits on him one night after a fire alarm. Through their burgeoning relationship, we hear the tragedy of Adam's young life and his attempts now to reconnect spiritually and literally with his parents, who were killed in a car accident when he was just a child. Claimed actors Claire Foy and Jamie Bell play those parents. The movie is adapted from Taichi Yamada's novel Strangers. And at the weekend, I met stars Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel, along with filmmaker Andrew Haig. First of all, let's listen to a scene from the film where Paul Meskel's Harry, a little the worst for wear, knocks on Andrew Scott's character Adam's door. And Harry is holding a very nice bottle of Japanese whiskey. Drink. It's Japanese. It's meant to be the best in the world, but I, I couldn't tell you why, so... Oh, thanks. Okay, um... Okay, how about I come in anyway? If not for a drink, then... for whatever else you might want. Um... I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Do I scare you? No. We don't have to do anything if I'm not your type. There's vampires at my door. Andrew Scott, Paul Meskel, welcome to Arena. What have you two guys done with this film? (laughs) It is an extraordinary piece of work. Thank you so much. How quickly did you know, Andrew? I knew, about, I knew when I read the script that it was an extraordinarily, beautifully, specifically written script. And um, yeah, when we started to see it with audiences and how profoundly affected everybody is watching it, we kind of knew this is something that's really connecting with audiences. And we knew when we were filming it, right? Yeah. We knew that it was, you kind of know a little bit that it was. Yeah, special. well, it was like, you can always tell that the performances that you're watching and the notes that Andrew is giving you is moving you, that that's the only thing that like, you have a kind of barometer for as an mm. actor. So yeah, it felt very special when we were filming it, for sure. Really struck me about, you know, and this sounds so negative, how damaged they both are, but what's extraordinary about that damage is they treat it so differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thinking yeah. of that, that opening scene, or that early encounter, uh, where, where Paul, is, as, as Harry asks Adam, uh, <laughs> you, um, are you afraid? I'm not afraid at all, yeah, exactly. <laughs> says Adam. He's, how frightened is he? Oh, I think he's frightened. Yeah. It's, it's what the, uh, the essence of the film, I think, is about letting love in. Yeah. It's, very, it's very cinematic and very symbolic. Mm. You can't let him into the house yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the beautiful uh, symbolism in the film is that you have to, as scary and frightening as it is, to let somebody in yeah. who's beautiful and dangerous and uh, confr- can see you and who you can see. 
that's not sometimes even the fact that you can see someone you're attracted to something in somebody sometimes you it's a bit the readiness is all you know mm. and, yeah um, he's just not ready to and that's what the journey of the movie is and in some ways Paul uh, uh, Harry is the direct opposite of that he's yeah. so hey I'm here I'm available whatever you want I'm here I'm here to give it to you but I don't believe him either no, when I he says that the, <laughs> absolutely he, he's, he's this person who kind of skirts above his own feelings he, yeah. he knows He's, it's almost like he's a great actor. He knows, mm. like he'll go out and he'll take drugs. He's a bit of a party boy. Yeah. He's very front-footed. But he's doing that all in an attempt to never have to stop and analyze. And what I think that they both give each other in the film is Harry gives Adam an energy that's forcing him to kind of ignite. Mm. And Adam is giving Harry the space to pause and talk mm. and well that's an extraordinary gift and a very simple thing on paper but a very difficult thing in reality uh, in life yeah. and I think that they both the fact that they see each other and know what the other person requires I find very moving me too, yeah. me too. and the other aspect of that is I mean on the surface they're doing one thing all of this is other stuff is going on yeah. internally and yeah. you both play that you know we as the audience see that yeah. internal life what kind of work did you do with Andrew Andrew Haig on that internal life, on that background material, if you like? Well, I suppose one of the things, the greatest thing that you can act, I believe, is sometimes forthright is a wonderful thing to act, but sometimes feeling something and presenting something else is a wonderful thing to, to You're act. You're the master of that, though. That's I, think that's, I, I think it's a gorgeous thing to, because yeah. I think so many, so for so much of us, we, we have duality going on all the time, that, that there's... We all have this history that we can't help help um, help bringing, and so Andrew's I think really recognised that in the script. Andrew mm. Haig's script is was so. It's just you look forward to acting. You think, wow, it was it's so much there on the page, and there was so much opportunity for acting. And there's only four of us in the in the film. It's so intimate. So just to be able to do it with the best actors in the world, you know, um, was extraordinary. And obviously that emotional intensity, people talk about the physical aspect of the relationship, mm. but it's the emotional intimacy yeah. between yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Adam and yeah. Harry that I find and actually... they're challenging with each other, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm not right. They, that's how love, I think, manifests well, no, When itself. you say that line, the one when you're like, but it's not a, why, why is it okay? Yeah, you say yeah. a thing, Harry says something that he's trying to use his tactics to skirt mm. over the top of it. And you say something that is like again one of the simplest things to say. Yeah. It's so full of love because he's like tell explain to yeah. me why that's okay. Yeah, and, and, he, and Harry does it to, yeah. to Adam when he says he goes oh well this horrible thing happened to me a long time ago and he says why does that matter? Yeah, why does it's it matter? so loving, it's yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. And when you get to act that, and that's just, that, it's just an exp it's expert writing. And, and then there's then there's that conceit of the parents, yes. you know, yeah. and you, Adam sees the parents as they were when he was twelve, yes. you know, when they were killed in that awful car crash. Yes. So you playing that, Andrew, you know, how how far back into your own childhood did you find yourself going? Because really there are times you were both an adult and a child when I was looking at you in screen. Yeah, yeah, I felt we shot it in Andrew Haig's, our director's childhood yeah. home. Extraordinary, extraordinary, and there was a, you know. The production design of that house, mm. that suburban house, which is not dissimilar to the little house that I grew up in, you know, in the 1980s and all the yeah. kind of toys that you would have. And yeah. You open up the drawer and you think, oh my God, I had that copy book when I was at school. Or, and I was taking pictures and sending them to my siblings and going, do you remember having this? And there is something that you just remember really in a really sensual way about your childhood home. Um, and that conceit really worked. Mm. We didn't know because Claire and Jamie are 
younger than me. Yeah. Um, if that was going to work. But actually, it's the role. It's not the age that's interesting. It's the role. And actually, if you can put yourself imaginatively into a childhood place, you do it now. You know, mm. I'm an adult and I still still play. The, the, I'm still a child with my, yeah. my parents. It's essential to be an actor to yeah, still be a child. child yeah. In some ways, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Exactly right. Uh, which, which brings me to how childish are Irish people? What is going on with Irish actors? I mean, look at the Oscars last year. Look at the awards that both of you are hauling in on a regular basis, not just, as I hope, for this film, but for, for lots of other stuff too. What has caused that, do you think, first of all, Andrew? Because you, you came from you know, that kind of late 80s, yeah. 90s theatre yeah. background. Yeah, I, I don't know. We were talking about it earlier on. It's, it's, a, it's a confidence, I think. There's an internationalism that, the interne- that, that being able to audition mm. for international things yeah. and the proximity of actors... Uh, you know, I was just saying when I started off, you had to put your 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 audition tape in an envelope and send it off <laughs> over to to, to yeah. LA. Now you can just send it. So yeah. so an executive in America yeah. will go, well, just get me that person. I don't care how they they, they where where they are. Um, so it feels the world just feels a little smaller. Yeah, exactly. I think that helps. So Irish actors are being able to um, be seen. Frankly, I, I think also culturally we have a history of storytelling. Like it's in, yeah, it's in our, in our culture. culture. Yeah. And I think the thing that I like working about actors, Irish actors in particular, is that they pay attention in equal parts to the character, but also the story. Yeah. I think when I've worked with actors that I haven't enjoyed as much, and it's not, and it's to do with their extraordinary actors and great at playing their part, but they don't have an acute awareness of the story. The entire story. And I think that's that's kind of what um, I think is maybe def- definable about Irish acting. Yeah. It's or to me, that's that, that that's what I would. Say yeah, when I'm working with you, I think you have an acute awareness of your character, but also what the story's about. Well, I suppose it means that you have to you, do, you, you have to in a whole symphony you have to play. The notes are interesting, but it's when you place them and when when you reveal yeah. stuff, isn't it? And what else is in the music at that moment? Exactly, that, and you yeah. go, I'm not going to play that note yet, and play it later. And I also think I, I suppose emigration is is a big thing because how you keep people alive is by telling stories yeah, about them. And so if yeah. somebody has left the country. Or if you want to remember Ireland, you tell stories about it, and you tell really specific stories, and probably you never let the truth get yeah. out. Maybe a good story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both. Thank yeah, you well, so thank much. You very Wonderful much. performances. Congratulations. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. God, look at you. What? You were just a boy, but now you're not. You're totally different, but it's still you. Well, I thought you'd be hairier. Like your dad. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> like a hairy chest myself. <laughs> Christ, do you know who you remind me of? Uh, who? You look just like my dad. Did he? Hmm. I remember him anyway when I was a little girl. God, isn't that mad? It's like seeing you both exactly the same time. Oh, I've made your favourite. Well, I hope it's still your favourite. I'll just go and pop the kettle on and then you can tell me everything. A clip there from All of Us Strangers. Andrew Higg, writer and director of All of Us Strangers, welcome to Arena. What a film you have given us here, Andrew. Tell me your reaction when you read 
the novel on which it's kind of loosely based was certainly the starting point. What was your reaction that made you think, this is a movie? Yeah, it's always so hard. I, when I first read it, I was like, I'm not sure what this movie is. And I'm not sure that I'm the person to make this movie. Um, and because it's a very traditional ghost story, the, the original novel. And, it, and, it, and it's very different from what the film is. But still, there is this central idea of being able to go back into your past, meet your parents again. And that kind of idea of a reunion with even who you were back then, let alone meeting mm. your parents again, was so fascinating to me. And I felt like it unpicked lots of things that I've, I've always been interested in. And this became this sort of strange metaphysical space in order to explore all of those kind of things. And one of the things that you, that you changed from the novel was having the, the central protagonist as, as a gay man. What did that open up and, and allow you to explore? I think it opened up a lot, actually. It allowed me to, 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 to look, and I wanted to do it for a while, about the specific experience of a gay person growing up in the 80s, which, thank God, everything is very different now. It was pretty rough in the 80s for a very long time for a lot of people. And, so, and I think that has left a sort of scar and a mark on so many queer people. And then they're trying to forget that they had to deal with all of that stuff. And a little bit like grief and loss, you force it all down. And I feel like this was a way for, for Adam's character to sort of deal, bring all that back out to the surface by essentially going back to the 80s almost, because his parents still feel like they're set in the 80s. So that was really interesting. And also just a way to talk about queerness in relationship to family, and how that can be quite complicated. Uh, and it's still quite complicated for mm. a lot of people. Yeah, it's because in, in many ways, what happens with Adam, the, the Andrew Scott character, is that Adam comes out to his parents as a whatever, mid 40 year old man, mm. but they, they're treating him as if he's still a little 12 year old in some ways. That, that's a wonderful dynamic that's created. Mm. You know, whether Adam is a child or an adult mm. when he's speaking with his parents in those, in those sequences. You know, I remember one scene where he's wearing pajamas and think, are they his kitty? <laughs> the pajamas he had since he's 12, or are they adult pajamas? You know, that kind of ambiguity around what state, state what emotional state he's at is, is very important. Yeah, really important. I think Andrew does such a magnificent job of kind of oscillating between an adult self and, a, and, and the, the child reappearing in him, even physically. Sometimes he looks younger in certain scenes. And I feel like that is so central to this idea that it's so hard for us to remove our childhood from within us. You know, it's always there. I'm always amazed how much we are still kids trapped in these adult bodies. You can be 50, 60, 70, and you're like, you're still a child, trapped in that adult's body. I mean, who, none of us feel like grown-ups. And it's so easy to feel like you're suddenly back there again. And that's what's so interesting about those scenes to me, is Adam is suddenly, he's a grown man, he feels like he's all right in his life, and suddenly he feels like he's 12, 13, whatever mm. it was, back there again, uh, like he, and feeling like he used to feel. But there is a sense too, I think, you know, for the artist, whatever that form may be, actor, filmmaker, <laughs> writer, um, that inner child, it's vital that that inner child is, is alive and well and talking to you on a regular basis. And it strikes me that Adam's character, the Andrew Scott character, that inner child was so damaged by what happened by his parents. He kind of has to go back and, and nurture that child. 
Exactly, and I feel like for him, it, he's just deadened everything. He's pushed everything down, so much like pain and grief and, and, and shame and all kinds of things mm. wrapped up to obviously the loss of his parents, but also growing up in the 80s gay and all those kind of things. There's so many things all tangled up together. And I do feel like, you know, there is a, a sense that it feels like therapy for him almost to go back in, look at it, feel it, literally experience it again in order to sort of come to some sort of understanding of what of what uh, you can do to move forward. And the other aspect of that is, of course, the period that he's going back to is when the AIDS epidemic was at its highest, when all the fear was there. And you see that, mm. both Claire Foy and Jamie Bell as the parents, I mean, beautiful performances as well as, as uh, both Andrew and Paul, that their, their fear around that in a way that in today's uh, queer world, AIDS is not as, it's still an issue obviously, but not a life and death issue necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't that same fear. Like I think there's a generation, I was interested in this generation that grew up as AIDS was already here in the world. Lots of queer people grew into their sexuality being like, hold up. If I'm going to be gay, I am going to get AIDS mm. and I'm going to die. That is what the, the fear was. So there's a, there's a generation of kids who are now adults, who are now like 40, 50, 60, that grew right into their sexuality with that mm. on, their, on their shoulders. And that was a terrifying time. And we see that in the scenes between Harry, Paul Meskell's character, and uh, Adam, Andrew Scott's character, where Obviously, Harry is, is a contemporary gay man, and those fears are just not there. Now, he is covering up a lot, let's be honest. <laughs> he's, he's hiding a lot underneath that. But that dynamic of having the two generations of gay man is interesting too. Yeah, I found that fascinating about how different it is for a new generation. But also, it's almost like, look what's different, but also look what is the same. So even a younger generation, and it's not even about if you're necessarily gay or queer, but anybody that just feels like they're separate from mm. things can feel incredibly lonely. And I think that's the point. Lots of things have changed, but that doesn't mean that suddenly everybody is finding things easy. One of the things, you know, when I was watching the film first and before I knew about the existence of the novel, you think, oh, this is an incredibly autobiographical piece. It has that feel of it. One of the things that you did, which I think is astonishing, that you shot the scenes from, from the 1980s in your own childhood home. How did that decision come about? It came about probably quite just like foolishly almost. I was like, well, I'm imagining a house as I'm writing the script and I can't, I keep imagining my own house. And I hadn't been there for 40 years, mm. more than that, 42 years. So, but it, I realized how strongly imprinted the geography of that house felt in my head. Like I could remember every single nook and cranny of that house, even though I was really young when I lived there. And so it just made sense. I wanted to go back there for my own personal reasons to sort of investigate how that felt and emotionally how that felt. Um, and of course, it's a character going back into his past. Mm. So I wanted to do the same and throw myself into that to see how it felt for me. I have a funny feeling your inner child had a little chat with you about that one. <laughs> he was like, you need to come back here. You need to, you need to deal with some of this stuff. You need to come back to that environment. And what, what, I mean, you, walk, you go up, you knock on the door, you say, hi, I used to live here. Can I make a film? Yeah. And he was very, he was like, oh, great. And then he let us in and then we, he allowed us to redecorate it. And I put in stuff that I remembered from my own childhood in there and the wallpaper on the wall and the sort of bad fake stone fireplace and all those things that were, you know, common uh, at that time. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a strange exercise for me to unpick as well as Adam. What emotional weight did that put on you, though? Directing in that house, you know, and as I say, 
I'm sure some aspects of Adam's character, because you did adapt and write the, 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 the screenplay, mm -hmm. some aspects of Adam's character must be autobiographical. How difficult was it to contain those emotions? Or were you right just to let them out? It was, it, it was, it was difficult sometimes, like especially some of the scenes with the mum and dad, you know, in the scene, you know, when he's talking to his dad, you know, and all the Christmas tree around the Christmas tree. It was definitely emotional for me to have to deal with it. But I, I feel like it's important as a filmmaker sometimes just to let that out, hmm. even on set, to not be afraid of it. Like, I'm asking my actors to be vulnerable. I'm asking them to give something of themselves. So I have to do the same thing in that environment. And so while it, it was emotional at times and quite difficult, and I would go back home at the night and be like, oh, that was, that was felt quite rough. I, lots of things are, are re-emerging. Hmm. Um, was difficult. And had you suffered some kind of parental loss like that? My parents are still alive, uh, but it was complicated at the time because as I was filming it, my dad went into a dementia home uh, as I was filming this film. So I was, would go and visit him at like weekends, because he was in hospital actually at that time, and then coming back and filming scenes with Jamie Bell as a sort of version of my dad. Wow. So it was a very strange environment. And the fact that dementia was involved in that, you know, that mixed up memory. Maybe at times he, he thought you were his brother or he was talking to you and as if does. you were that child. Yeah, he has, he, he sort of lost an understanding. He knows I'm sort of his son still, but has no understanding of my life. So he's forgotten the fact that I'm gay. He's forgotten the fact that I, have a partner. So all of that is gone from my dad's mind, which is very interesting because then you're like, oh God, he knows nothing about me anymore. And maybe that matters, maybe that doesn't matter, I don't know what that means. But to then film some of those scenes was, was yeah, was, uh, was emotionally complicated. Oh, I, I can imagine, but that emotional complication, I have to say, is both a delight and a pain for us yeah. to watch as audience members. Andrew, thank you so much no, for pleasure. a, a thank wonderful you. film and thank thanks so for being much. with us this evening. Cheers, thank you so much. And that's director Andrew Haig there talking to me at the weekend about the film All of Us Strangers, which opens in cinemas on Friday, and we will be reviewing the film on tomorrow night's arena. And welcome back to Arena. Reminder that you can watch us on live stream on rte.ie forward slash arena. This week's TV recommendations feature big Hollywood names, including our own Barry Keoghan. Apple TV's Masters of the Air follows the men of the 100th Bomb Group as they conduct bombing raids over Nazi Germany and grapple with the frigid conditions, lack of oxygen and terror of combat conducted at 25,000 feet into the air. Expats on Prime Video stars Nicole Kidman, based on the best-selling novel The Expatriates by Janice E. K. Lee. Uh, Margaret, played by Kidman, moves from the US to Hong Kong with her husband and their three children. And Griselda on Netflix, inspired by the real-life story of Griselda Blanco, a Colombian businesswoman turned drug lord who became the godmother of the criminal underworld in 1970s Miami, Florida. But we'll start. Uh, Div Hanratty and Arlene Hunt have been watching for us and they're both with me in the studio this evening. And let's start with uh, Masters of the Air. Man of the moment, Barry Keoghan is in there. One of the Irish men of the moment, let's be honest. Uh, Killian Murphy could be, <laughs> would have to be considered a man of the moment as well. And Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal, that I was speaking to earlier, men of the moment, several of them out there. Um, I, Andrew, maybe, or Dave, 
<laughs> Will I call you that as well? A man of the moment, you could yeah. say. <laughs> Dave, Dave Hanrat, you're not the man of the moment. The, the setup here with Masters of the Air, after, I watched the first episode today, and from the very outset you think, is anybody going to get out of these aeroplanes alive? It's, 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 it's a very frightening setup, based on real life, obviously. Hugely, yes. And this is in the same universe and the same vein as Band of Brothers in the Pacific. It's very much following on from those to the point that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg are on mm. board with this project as executive producers. It's in the works for a very long time and we finally have it now. And yeah, <clears throat> you're tapping into what the big standout for the show is for me, which is when you get those sequences of these guys fighting in the air in their in their crafts and their airplanes, it is genuinely terrifying. It does feel like they're in they're encased in a metal box in the sky. And when, you know, German like Nazi bombers come at them and, and start tearing their planes apart with their gunfire it's 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 really scary yeah. like and it, it is perilous and when death comes in the show and it does come often it is unceremonious it is brutal it is unflinching and it is genuinely shocking when it happens and these men i mean some of them are majors as they <laughs> they refer to in their rank in the army but these are men. These are the very, part, very yeah, young. Under thirty, that yeah. The majority I, I of them. actually looked it up. A lot, most of them are like nineteen, nineteen twenty-two range. They're really, yeah, re- yeah, they're yeah. young, young men, and they're, they're not battle, they're not battle hardened. Mm. They're, they've come from basic training, so they come via Greenland, and then they, they, they're in their base in in the UK, in in England. They have no, most of them have no experience at all in dogfights or any sort of aerial combat so they have nothing so there's a, a point at the very start of it where they, one of the majors who goes out initially and has been in fights is mm. told by command don't tell them what it's like up there don't don't let them know because at one point you know uh, Buck says to Bucky or Bucky says to Buck you know why didn't you tell us what it was like up there And it, it, because if they had even tried to describe yeah. how how dangerous and terrifying and how you can freeze to death it's yeah. so many things can go wrong on those planes these are not like well so many things can go wrong on planes nowadays I think yeah. about it but these are these are perilous situations and these are B-17 bombers they're yeah. big heavy, heavy bumblebees yeah, of things and, and coming after them are these tiny little well you've got the Luftwaffe pilots. and they're yeah. they, they, they're like wasps yeah. so you've got a bumblebee and a wasp yeah. you know and, and these guys they come out of the clouds you can't see them the, the Americans are flying in formation so they have a formated flight and these the Luftwaffe are flying at them from every direction whatsoever yeah. and they're kind of firing so you've got everyone in very very perilous positions because you've got you know you've got your and gunners they're in cockpits with glass so that glass. The, the fighter pilots can see but them but even even if they get struck it, so there's one scene in particular where you know the, the the glass is shattered but the the guy in it he's not hit by he's not hit by by fire but he almost freezes to death yeah yeah when you're that high up and you've yeah, got no course. protection whatsoever it's, and these are these are kids yeah, so maybe uh, give us a sense of, and there are a lot of characters involved and you kind of, inevitably you get to so know some of them and they're gone quite quickly because that was the nature yeah. of, of yeah. the activity at the time. Maybe explain to us a little bit about um, Barry Kilgan's character, Lieutenant Curtis Biddick. Uh, I have a scene with him talking to Major Buck Clevin, played by Austin Butler. And that there's one of the majors who's, I don't know what age he is, you know, in his mid-twenties somewhere. Yeah, they're all very young men. Um, Barry Kilgan, I mean, like, it'd be interesting because like, this production got underway a few years ago. I initially started shooting in 2021. COVID shut it down numerous times. So I will say from the outset, 
upset. I mean, anyone who's kind of a, a Barry Hogan fan in the post-Saltburn craze that we're all in right now, maybe temper your expectations. It's a smaller mm. role than you might expect from him. He's not top billing or anything, but he's, you know, commanding in his way. He's doing a very broad New York accent, which I think is kind of hit and miss, personally. But um, he is the star that we know that we're seeing on the rise yeah. here. And he's in the ensemble. It is an ensemble, as you mentioned. There are so many people to keep track of, and at times it can be a bit difficult to do that. But, you know, it shifts perspective here and there. I guess if you've got a lead actor here, it's probably Callum Turner, who plays one of the characters alongside Austin Butler. They're the, the top two guys. Austin Butler plays uh, Major Gale, Book Clevin, and Callum Turner plays his best friend, Major John, Bucky Egan. So, you know, <laughs> Book, and Bucky. Book and Bucky, uh, they're best friends. And, you know, this thing, it has the feel of an old Hollywood production, the way it looks, the way even mm. the stars look. And, of course, Austin Butler... This was when he was promoting Elvis uh, midway through 2022. He's being asked about this program that he was still working on. And he does have the Elvis voice in this as well, I should say. <laughs> he's very much doing the Southern draw, but he's yeah. a movie star. He has the looks. Callum Turner, movie star as well as a UK actor. We talked about him on The Boys in the Boat recently. He's really good at an American accent, but it's the ensemble kind of comes together and you really do get the sense that these people are, are comrades. And at the end of the day, yeah. you know, they go up in the skies, they come back down, they try and put it out of their heads until they get back up there again. But yeah, as Arlene was saying, it is genuine terrifying when yeah. they're up in the planes and the sequence where you see them going heading off to fly and, and the guys who are on the ground driving yeah. alongside them in the jeeps waving to them but and you saying, know see you later you, see you later you know hoping they'll see them you later. know the potential for doom is high and they yeah. know the potential for doom is high they know that for every formation that goes out not every plane is going to yeah. come back and that's the hard part for them all they're, they're, they're so yeah. young at the moment that they like they lost you know in the first episode like you know they lost six, uh, three, three four men, but 30, 30 yeah, young men, men. Each plane, yeah. and, and they're gone that, that's it they're yeah. gone so yeah. it's that sort of devastation yeah. in numbers that is, is very difficult for them all to take Let's listen to Barry Kogan as uh, Curtis Bittig talking to the Major Buck Clevin played by Austin Butler and this is a, a pep talk just before they head out on one of those expeditions uh, for their first bombing over Germany strong language in the midst of this clip as you know, it's our first mission here. I trust you all to remember your training and know your jobs. Let's knock one off and drop bombs on those Nazi fucks and we get to go home early. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Major here is going to be flying with us. Major? First time in the sawmill, boys. Let's rack them up and knock them down. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, why are we still standing here then? Yeah, definitely, definitely a touch of Elvis there from Austin <laughs> Butler and uh, Barry Kilgan. Uh, Austin Butler is Major Buck Clevin and Barry Kilgan is Lieutenant Curtis Biddick from uh, Masters of the Air. Apple TV it's on, isn't it, at the, at the, at the moment. Do we get to know, because it, it's a very big cast and it is a big ensemble piece, but there's 10 crew members in each in each aeroplane. Um, yeah, do we get to know the characters? Are they demarcated enough? Do yeah, we? I think so, I think so. And also, I don't mean this to be glib, but you're going to lose yeah, a lot of the yeah, yeah. secondary characters as they go along because, it, it, to me, the bombing raids that are going on and the way the bombing raids are set up and the bombing raids, they're, they're, they will be on there's going to be huge casualties in this. Yeah. There will absolutely be huge casualties and something just to bear in mind when you watch it, you know, because it's upsetting when you do yeah. find yourself fond of somebody and then... Well, you know, and that's a fiction... Well, 
fiction, yeah. based on fact, but they are fictional characters yeah. that we're watching this But game. the main, the you look at Austin Butler and those, the, I, I would imagine because they're the heavy hitters, I would say that they would be in for most, for sure, for most of it, but I wouldn't, mm. I wouldn't bet all my yeah. money on that though either. No, either would I. No. When, I hear, when I hear two friends that are <laughs> yeah, the leading evening, oh, there's something that doesn't sound good, not, it's not a good place to be. Um, will you stick with it to the end? I think, is there many episodes? Is nine. It in to- nine in nine, total. Yeah. You watch the th- have you watched? The first two drop on Friday, yeah. I, I, I've kind of played ahead and you know we can't say too much for spoilers yeah. but it is compelling it is gripping and I, like it is interesting to kind of see uh, it is almost like who is going to make it yeah. to the end here and, and what will we learn about them I think the characterization can be a bit thin on occasion but it's such a spectacle I mean almost 300 million dollars was spent on this even the opening credits last for two and a half minutes and is a mini movie in and of itself so if you're a fan of spectacle and you're a fan of wartime drama yeah. it ticks cliched boxes but it does so with incredible panache and like I say I can't stress it enough those dogfights are really really scary and you want to watch it on the biggest screen you can find biggest yes. screen you can find that's, that's yeah. for sure uh, recommendation from you Def, and, and similarly from you Arlene okay first two episodes available on Apple TV Plus on Friday the 26th of January and one episode per week thereafter until the 15th of March isn't it amazing how they're all going back to the old fashioned method of one episode a week however let us put that to the one side just for the time being uh, let's move on to number two tonight expats a look at uh, personal and professional lives of a tight-knit group of expatriates living in Hong Kong based on a novel. Uh, yeah, a, a, 2016 novel yeah. The Expatriates by yeah. Janice uh, K. Much Wiley. longer title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially about the same thing. It's yeah. about a group of... I think for, saying like, I think friends of Big Little Lies will enjoy this show. Yeah. You've got your exotic locations, you've got your very wealthy, waspy styled, rich women. Uh, you have intrigue, you've got lies, deceit, infertility, a lot of things that will resonate with a lot of people and you've got a mystery at the heart of it. So I think for, big, uh, for fans of Big Little Lies in mm. particular, they will love this. And, and there is a mystery at the heart of it and even that takes, the ticket time teasing us with having a lot of information is withheld a lot of the time Dave so it's really important not to give anything away really here isn't it yeah and we've said before the good people at Prime Video are always like don't reveal anything please guys <laughs> so I'm going to try and dance around that but there is a mystery driving this <clears throat> there is a tragedy driving this and it mm. interconnects all these different characters in Hong Kong in 2014 when it's set and you have you know kind of characters dealing with their insecurities their infidelities their perhaps irreparable trauma I was really struck by the way that the show looked um, it's headed up by Lulu Wang, who made an amazing film called The Farewell a few years ago. And she's the f- sole kind of creative voice on this, or the driving creative force, I should say. And it just feels from the off like a thing of substance. It, it feels like a rich adult drama in the vein that we don't necessarily get every other week. The cast are impeccable. And I found myself from the very opening scene being like, yeah, I'm in on this one. It's got its hooks into me right mm-hmm. away. Um, maybe a little bit of the dynamic... Uh, I, <laughs> that you can tell us between Nicole Kidman's character of Margaret and her friend Hilary played by Sayara Blue here uh, Arlene you have to be careful with that one as well yeah. because you, you don't have to be careful with all of them just so with, I'll just set the two women up because with Kidman she's sort of her, she moved to Hong Kong because her husband Clark had hmm. taken a well paid job and they were initially only supposed to be there for a period of time so she's gone in there as his support Whereas Hillary is sort of the main breadwinner, the main driver of her her relationship with her husband. And so you've got these two powerfully ambitious women 
who are neighbours and who are confidants and who are friends and yeah, who strike they, up a friendship. Yeah, and they don't, um, Nicole Kidman's children refer to Hillary as Auntie Hillary. Yes, correct. Yeah. So yeah. Even though they're just pals, but in the way that that Yeah, one, because they connect on a, yeah. a very, very base level. They're they're wealthy, well-to-do, yeah. driven women. And even though uh, Margaret, who's just Nicole Kidman's character, she's had to take a sidestep for her husband's Yeah her husband's new job you know you can actually see she's kind of chafing at the bit at this because when we meet her first and this is not giving away a whole lot yeah. she is organising his 50th uh, birthday, birthday party. party and you know you can see this is, is almost demeaning for her to a degree because yeah. it's not the sort of thing that she wants to do it isn't the sort of thing that's busy in her life but she you know she, she tolerates it for now Yeah and she certainly has ideas that perhaps she'd like to move away from this particular <laughs> life that she's living in not necessarily give walk away from the family but just a little bit of me time I think is probably what she's looking for uh, Margaret here played by Nicole Kidman talking to Hillary, played by Sayara Blue about just that kind of getting a bit of me time Do you ever imagine yourself living a completely different life being a completely different person all the time I love my family, but I have this growing desire to leave them. I got an apartment in Kowloon. I just sometimes want to be alone, you know? Where I'm not somebody's wife, not somebody's mother. Where I'm not defined by tragedy and not reminded that I'm the mother of two children instead of three. You'll always be his mother, Margaret. There you go. That's uh, Nicole Kidman and she's Sayana fabulously Blue. brittle yeah. in this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, Nicole does great brittle. <laughs> she, does, she, does, she does brittle so well. Uh, but they're incredibly wealthy people, and a bit like Big Little Lies. Sometimes do you kind of think, you know, really? Well, you do have a really interesting character in this called Mercy, played by an actress called Ji Young Yu, who I wasn't familiar mm. with before, and she's absolutely brilliant in this. Um, so she's kind of our every man, I guess, or every woman, I should yeah. say, our audience surrogate into this kind of extremely, as you say, opulent world. And just to go back to her for a second, I mean, like, um, I mentioned that the opening of the show is quite arresting and it grabbed me straight away. One of the reasons is it reminded me of the opening sequence from the excellent film Magnolia and that's an ensemble cast of characters colliding with each other as well. Um, with this, you get this voiceover talking about kind of case studies in life where right. tragedies occur and where victims are the, the focus and this voiceover says I want to talk about the perpetrator because that's the most interesting thing yeah. and I am the villain of the piece and then the story begins to unravel and straight away I was like that's a really smart creative decision. Yeah. The writing is really really strong on this show and like I say I mean one episode in I, I wanted to watch the whole thing in one sitting Alright six part limited series um, three episodes watched uh, oh sorry um, where is it available it is available on Prime isn't it yeah um, I think Netflix are they, are they, it's Prime no, is it, it Prime it is Prime, Prime, yeah. It is Prime it's, yeah Netflix is the third one we're going that's to watch right, yeah. Griselda um Created by the members of Narcos and Painkiller and stars Sofia <laughs> Vergara. That's kind of you, everything that's all, you need to that's know. That's all you is, need to know about this. This is so much fun. Narcos in particular. I mean, this is kind of yeah. the, 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 the drug lady, if you like. Well, yeah, she's the, drug the, the, godmother. Version, the godmother. The godmother. The it, godmother. It's that version of Narcos that we're getting here. Based on a real life character. Yeah, it's based on Griselda Blanco, who's like a very efficient mm. uh, 
cartel leader um, and there's an opening uh, line supposedly from Pablo Escobar I don't know how, how real it is you know that he was only ever afraid of one woman in his life and it was her <laughs> you know, which kind of makes it sets it up for this powerhouse performance from you know Sofia Vergara like she's yeah. just she is unleashed in this it's great fun um, she you know and from the very off from the opening of this like she she, this is not someone you're going to be able to beat very easily. You know, she's set up in such a way that she's almost tragic from the start and then yeah. is not tragic from the start because she is, you, your sympathies are going to ping and pang left, right and centre with this woman because on the one hand, she's a, a woman, in, this is the 70s and 80s, so she's underestimated by men, left, right and centre. But she also is very lucky in that way because she's also underestimated by the law. Yeah. Because who, no one would ex- right. expect a woman to be like this. Let's have a listen to her in action. She's speaking to her friend Carmen here who took her in when she left her husband to f- and fled to Milan, as in took Griselda in when she left her husband and was hoping to start her own business. Very strong language in the midst of this. I still can't believe you're here. Me either. I know it's a lot to ask. So I just want you to know that if you have a problem, I can just find a motel and No, take... Griselda, it's not that. You know I sympathise with what you're going through. My divorce from Ronaldo was fucking brutal, okay? But you don't want me bringing that shit back around you. I get it. You know, there's a lot of women who leave the man but not the life. You don't know what he did to me. He hit you. Worst. Listen, Carmen, I didn't call you just because we had so many good times together. Call you because I saw what you did. You didn't just tell Reynaldo to fuck off. You came out, you did your thing, now you have your own travel agency. Yeah. That's fucking inspiring. All that time as a stewardess had to count for something. You know, that's what I want to. Wow. A business of my own. Sofia Vergara there as Griselda in the Netflix series of the of the same name, and you get a sense of the 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 position that women were often in in these in these type of relationships. So she has a lot to do to fight against that, Dave. Yeah, she has to be a seductress. She has to be seen to be meek. She has to be able to outfox them. And Sofia Vergara is interesting casting here because she's a primarily comedic actress. Of course, mm. everyone will know her from Modern Family, which ran for so, so long. And that was a very broad performance. And she gets to be broad here, but also be subtle. So it's kind of like, you know, can she run the gamut of being this kind of savage, snake-like character, but also someone who's a bit vulnerable too? And I guess we kind of see that rise. I mean, the reason to watch this, if you're familiar with shows like Narcos, films like Scarface etc mm. we've all seen South American drug cartels and rise to power and fall etc etc but the reason to watch this is to see it from a female perspective and if that's enough of an interest for you if that's enough of a hook and to see Sofia Vergara kind of out of her comfort zone that should be enough for you for these six episodes but outside of that and this would be the same with Narcos or any of these series the, the, the problem of potentially glamorising this whole situation glamorising what she's doing glamorising who she became and what glamorising what she had to fight against but are they ever really- Really glamorized because what the, the great rise to the top has for inevitably has a terrible, terrible, painful fall to, yeah, to yeah. nothing again. And in the back of your mind, even with Narcos, even with Pablo Escobar and all of his wealth with his animals and his islands and everything else, how did he end up? Yeah, you know, and, and there is no, there's no sort of 
evidence that I, Scarface, how did he end up? I mean, there's no evidence that the Sopranos, how does anyone end up with these guys? So they, they can rise to a certain level, but because of the people that they are and where their heart is and where their brains are and where their competition is, you know the inevitable fall is going to be so dramatic and so vicious as well. So I don't I don't find shows that glamorise this kind of, they mm. might glamorise a moment in the life of that fraternity or yeah. our, our lifestyle but it's it's always with such huge cost. Um, Spanish as well we should say there's a bit of Spanish and English you were saying you loved the Spanish and I Ireland. did because it, gave it, it, it gave it a really there's a way of saying things in, in Spanish that you don't, you don't get the same sound and, and energy yeah. in English and there's a lot of Spanish in this but it's great it's so much great fun yeah. and it just adds to the whole it adds to the whole atmosphere of the show Worked for you too Dave Yeah like I say it's familiar territory but I thought it was an interesting new perspective I don't think that the performance is as strong as some of the reviews I've seen where they've said it's it's transformative you know it isn't it's a very good solid performance it's a solid enough show it has that kind of Netflix sheen which I don't love feels a bit flat at times but it's six episodes it moves at a clip and I think if you're a fan of the genre you'll be right in love this Okay right that's Dave Han Ratty and Arlene Hunt. First two episodes of Master of the Air available on Apple TV Plus this Friday. Two episodes of Expats on Prime this Friday. Griselda will be available on Netflix this Friday. All of them coming to us at the weekend. Now for well over 30 years, the annual PJ O'Connor Awards for Radio Drama have celebrated the best in new Irish writing. RTE Radio Drama on One is inviting candidates to submit radio plays of 40 minutes in duration. First prize of €5,000 for the winning script, as well as runner-up prizes of €4,000 and €3,000, respectively. Closing date for entries is Friday, January the 26th. Friday, January the 26th. If you want to find out the rules of the competition and get the application form, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And please not note that only plays written specifically for radio can be considered. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. The saga of the Parthenon marbles, also referred to as the Elgin marbles, rumbles on in Britain and in their home country of Greece. The marbles are part of a frieze that decorated the ancient Parthenon temple at the Acropolis in Athens and were famously removed by Lord Elgin at the beginning of the 19th century and exhibited in the British Museum where they have remained ever since, much to the chagrin of the Greeks. Who owns the antiquities is one of the questions posed at this year's Classics Now Festival and the man who can tease out the question is Director of the Institute of Art and Law and author of The Parthenon Marbles Dispute. Alexander Herman, delighted to have you on the programme with us this evening. Alexander, you know, even the fact that the Parthenon Marbles Many people would say, what are they? The Elgin Marbles, people will know almost immediately what you're talking about. That says an awful lot about the kind of confiscation that's involved when you can effectively rename something, Alexander. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Sean, for having me on this on the program. I, I very much look forward to to discussing these issues with you, and obviously to to speaking to the audience next week in Dublin. I'm very honoured to be back. I, I studied at Trinity College, so it's it's nice to be in my old okay. in my old haunts. Yeah. So the the question of what to call them actually sometimes determines what what we actually feel about these questions around cultural heritage and where it actually belongs. Elgin was was the British ambassador who went to the Ottoman Empire 210 years ago, and he effectively sent people to Athens to take 
um, parts of the Parthenon and other buildings on the on the Acropolis, which they did, and then brought these back with them to to London. So, if you call them the Elgin Marbles, it's in a sense giving giving title mm. to the to the person who took them. The Greeks will not accept that term. They they just refuse to to mention Lord Elgin in the same breath as these marbles. They like using the term the Parthenon Marbles to link them back to the to the monument from which they came. Give us a sense of what they were in that monument in their in their original state, Alexander. So these were part of the building. They were sculpted into the Parthenon in what was called pentelic marbles. So it was marble that was quarried from, from mountains near Athens. And they represented the ancient Greek gods, the mythological uh, figures like Athena and Poseidon and Zeus and the others. Um, they were part of the building, which was a temple at the time. It eventually became a church during the period of Christianity and then a mosque when the Ottomans took over uh, what is now Greece in the 1500s. And um, during that period, the pieces were um, largely preserved until an attack by the Venetians in the 17th century. And then the building that had been serving as a, as a religious center for a long time became a ruin. So by the time Lord Elgin's people showed up circa 1800, the building was, was largely uh, a ruin. It wasn't being used as, as any kind mm. of religious um, site. But uh, as you describe it there, Alexander, they were sculpted into the building. So this is like, you know, going in and pulling a, 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 a lump of a wall out and taking it back home and saying, have a look at this. It uh, totally and absolutely <laughs> out of its context. Well, yeah, I mean, some of the pieces were indeed pulled out of the building, the ones that were still up there. So about a third of what was taken. We're talking here about roughly 90 large pieces of sculpted marble. And so, as I said, about a third of them were taken from the building. The other two thirds were, were scattered across the, the site itself after the explosion in the 17th century. Um, so you, you could mm. argue, and I think the Greeks often do, that removing them from that cultural context effectively denudes them from any kind of cultural meaning. And, and, and the, the attitude, I suppose, it's very easy to look with 21st century eyes and be appalled at the acts of the 19th century, for example. But what Elgin was and his cohorts were doing at the time, he certainly wasn't alone in that type of act. No, no I mean, you certainly saw Napoleon sent his Egyptologist to Egypt after his army conquered that part of the world to start excavating there. And they, you know, they found the Rosetta Stone and other, other famous pieces. So it was something that was happening a lot at the time. Um, the problem is for the Greeks, they only became independent. They only had, in a sense, the right to look after their own cultural property in 1832, after their war of independence against the Ottomans. So they feel that these things were taken from them before they had a, a voice in the matter. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the pain of departure is so mm. acute for them. And of course, uh, uh, Elgin has had argued that he obtained legal written permission from the Turkish authorities to remove, to remove the sculpture. Uh, I that probably adds insult to injury for the Greeks. Well, especially because they had 350 years of rule by, by a foreign power, by the Ottoman Turks. And so they, they feel that especially acutely as well. And so that that's part of what plays into this. So you could say that the marbles were taken by Elgin's men in the beginning of the 19th century in a way that was legal at the time under the rules of the Ottoman Empire. But you have to question it from a moral perspective today and ask, is it 
an ethical stance to keep these pieces in a museum when they were taken in that kind of context. And keeping them in a museum at all, I mean, it's a bit like the arguments around keeping animals in a zoo, I suppose, in some ways. Is keeping them in a museum, even in in and of itself, problematic, even if they were back in Greece? Should they not, should there, would you favour some kind of restoration in situ to their former glory? Oh, it's a good it's a good question, but I think I mean certainly when it comes to the Parthenon marbles, the idea is that they would go if they went back to Greece, they would go to the Acropolis Museum, which is at the foot mm. of the of the Acropolis, so yeah. very close. You can still see the Parthenon, but not they wouldn't be reincorporated in the building itself. And so I think that's that's one of the arguments against returning them, because some people would say, well, why would why would we send them from one museum to another? What what benefit does that bring um, to understanding these pieces? There's also the argument on the side of the British Museum that in that kind of universal great encyclopedic museum, you're seeing these pieces in 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 comparison with the yeah. other great products of civilizations, the Persians, the Assyrians, uh, you know, the, the Egyptians, and so on. Whereas if you return them to Athens, you're only really understanding them in the context of one particular city and, and its very local history. When did the Greek, when did Greece begin to look to to have the Parthenon marbles returned to them? Well, you could say shortly after they became an independent state in, mm. in 1832, they passed a law very quickly that forbade any kind of export of, of antiquities. Um, so nothing really left after that point except unlawfully. And they, they started to make pleas for certain parts of the of the whole collection, not for the entirety of the collection. The real claim came in, in the 1980s when Greece had a, a very dynamic culture minister named Melina Mercuri, who had been an actress, was quite well known at the time. And she really took on this, this crusade. And she visited London many times. And there are images of her crying in front of the, the Elgin marbles on display at the British Museum and pleading for them to be returned to, to Greece. So she really took, took the, uh, the debate to the next level. And when did the British or have the British begun to listen to those pleas? Well, that's a very good question. They certainly didn't in the 1980s. And until about a year and a half, two years ago, there was really no movement on the British side. Now we're seeing that the British Museum is is opening up to a discussion with the Greeks. They're calling it a Parthenon partnership, whatever that means, but they're at least moving in the right direction. However, the UK government, which, as you probably know, is a conservative Tory government, they're not very interested in any kind of deal um, to return part of the Parthenon marbles or obviously all of the Parthenon marbles. So that's that's in a sense the the place that we're at right now. And when there was a a Labour Party government in Britain, was it any different? Well, interestingly, Labour promised when they were in opposition to return the marbles. But as soon as Tony Blair won in 1997, they they quickly forgot that promise. So whether it's Tory or Labour, it doesn't seem to make too much of a difference in terms of the government's view about keeping the Parthenon marbles in Britain. You're telling me that a politician didn't follow through on a promise made before an election. <laughs> well, one of one of the points that I make about the marbles, and I just wrote this long book about them, is that we should try to remove the 
politician on both sides on the mm. greek side it's always been political and that's actually harmed the cause in many cases and then on the british side it's obviously made it very difficult for the british museum to negotiate directly with the greeks so let the politicians take a step back and let the museum professionals and others um, take center stage here all right so the answer to the question who owns the antiquities might be a difficult one to answer but one thing who doesn't own them the politicians you can answer that question <laughs> easily for us exactly exactly i think that's fair they have they have different interests they don't have the interests of cultural heritage at heart they have a political no. interest at heart alexander I'm, I'm sure that the talk will be fascinating because there are many uh, the british museum is not the only place that would need to be to, to have a little speaking about and i'm sure that will be part of your conversation thanks so much for being with us this evening Thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> That's Ale pleasure. Alexander Herman. Who Owns Antiquities will feature Alexander and a panel of speakers, including Dr. Emer O'Connor. Professor Christine Morris will be chaired by Dr. Emily Mark Fitzgerald. It's at Trinity College, February the 2nd at 3pm. More information from classicsnow.ie. And just as we finish up, very sad news tonight, given our two broadcasts from Tradfest last night and the night before, which incidentally are available to you on the RTE player. Um, Professor Ivor Brown, well-known pioneer of mental health in Ireland has died. Brown, of course, also had a huge interest in Irish music and heritage, founded Clatter Records with his friend Garrick Brown. So that's sad news. I'm sure will be reflected in some of the events at Tradfest over the rest of the week. Er, yes, Jay, grow Alan. But that is our lot for this Wednesday evening here on Arena. Research this evening was by Niall Fitzmaurice. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ashley Grufferty was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. Fake no brainer, I think, is with you after the news. I will be back with you tomorrow night at seven o'clock.